unless you want to get a head start on that, that's fine with me too. I'll still be here. Some time ago, uh, when people laughed at two brothers and they thought they were out of their minds, the two brothers were the sons of a United Brethren minister. And uh, these two boys had a secret obsession. And that was to build a machine that could fly into the sky and take people wherever they wanted to go. Most people who knew Wilbur and Orville thought they were odd. I don't know if they're thinking I'm so odd today, especially when you can get from here to Texas in three hours uh, or Florida or wherever. But on December the 17th, 1903, Orville Wright climbed into a 750 pound machine empowered by a 12 horsepower gasoline engine and flew 120 feet on his first flight that lasted 12 seconds. And at that moment, these two boys proved the skeptics to be wrong. They proved that an airplane could be built and flown. They proved that it was possible for a human who does not have wings to fly. And people had mocked them, talked about them, laughed at them, and proved them, and they proved them all wrong. When Jesus Christ was on earth, he did some wonderful things in order to show the world that he was a, the Messiah and the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And to prove his word was true, he fulfilled prophecy. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. Uh, he cast out demons. He transformed lives. And because of this, a small minority believed, but a large majority did not believe. A great number of opponents and skeptics surfaced who mocked him and hated him and they did everything they could to discredit him. There were those who said Jesus was out of his mind. In the end, he proved the whole world was wrong. But you know, when meeting Jesus, one has to be confronted with a decision. You cannot meet the Lord and remain neutral. Once you meet him, you will either decide that he is the Son of God and the Savior of the world, or else you will decide he is a, a legend or a liar, or someone has said a lunatic on the level of a poached egg. This is true whenever you witness to someone, you know. You pass out a track introducing that person to Jesus Christ. They're confronted with a decision. Anytime you hand out a track, that person is going to be confronted with a decision. They're either going to accept the track, read it, and then they will make a decision. They will act on the message to receive Christ, or they will ignore the message by laying it aside, and they'll throw the track away. When you come face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ, you make a decision. You cannot remain neutral. What man cannot do is to merely pass him off as a good man. He won't allow that. No man can do and say the things that Jesus said and just be a good man. So notice for, with me the response of unbelief as we come to chapter 11, verse 14 through 16. It says there, And he was casting out a devil, and it, it was dumb. And it came to pass when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake, and the people wandered. But some of them said, He casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. 
and others tempting him sought of him a sign from heaven. So the account here opens with Jesus healing a man. Now this man had some physical ailments. He was unable to speak. But the cause of his physical problems was because of an uh, was because of an underlying spiritual problem. He was demon possessed. Now one of the wonderful things about Jesus is that he didn't just talk. He was more than just a teacher. Uh, he, uh, we are living in a world where everyone seems to be promising something. Have you noticed that? It doesn't matter whether it's a commercial or it's a politician or, or someone. Everybody wants to promise you something. But Jesus didn't just promise. He didn't just talk. He delivered. And that tells us something about Christianity. Christianity is not just talk. It should be life-changing. And if your life has not changed, then you have no business talking. Now, what has happened in your life that can only be explained in terms of the supernatural? We talked about the, the miracles this morning in our morning message. And one of the greatest miracles is that when a person comes to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and they're born again, that is a miracle. When people look at you, do they see a supernatural love at work? Are people amazed at your supernatural patience? Are you characterized by a supernatural compassion? You see, when Jesus acted, the result was amazing. And the people were amazed. He healed this man by going to the root of his problem and he cast out the demon and the healing was apparent to all who were present. The man who had been unable to talk was now speaking. And that kind of a miracle demanded a response from the people and the response was soon in coming. It was a twofold response. But some of them said he casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils, and others tempting him, sought of him a sign from heaven. So there were responses to this obvious miracle. A man had just been healed. Uh, there was a very obvious supernatural agent at work. The miracle could not be denied, and there seems to be no attempt to do so. People who have been lame are throwing away their crutches. People who have been deaf, now you could, they could hear a pin drop. I don't know if they had seeing eye dogs back then, but they were put out of work. People were asking for refunds from funeral homes. And then Jesus comes and does still another obvious miracle in their presence. Even the most diehard skeptic can't just laugh that off as some kind of superpower or something. They can't deny that a supernatural is taking place. So when people responded to the miracles of Jesus, one thing they did not do was to say that the miracle had not taken place. What they did do was to question the source and the significance of the miracle. So notice, first of all, the source of the miracle. But some of them said, He casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of devils. Now the name Beelzebub refers to an old Canaanite deity. You'll read about it in the Old Testament. Baal is the Canaanite word for Lord, and they used to worship Baal. 
But that's the word for Lord. Zebub was a reference to flies. He was known as Baal Zebub, the Lord of the flies. You read about it in 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 2 through 6. He was the God of diseases. Now the Jews had taken this name and changed it to Baal Zeba, which meant Lord of the dung. It was a term of derision. It eventually came to be used as a title for Satan. Now, do you see what they're doing here? They're pointing to Jesus and saying, he is Satan in the flesh. He is only to cure, able to cure diseases because he is the demon of diseases. And so they have seen the power of God's Holy Spirit at work, and they deliberately and knowingly reject that spirit. Secondly, the significance of the miracle. And others tempting him sought of him a sign from heaven. Now this was an unreasonable request in light of the fact that Jesus had just given them a sign from heaven. Jesus will address this request in verse 29 when he speaks of this generation being a wicked generation that seeks for a sign. But you notice here the response of the people in verse 15. And some of them said, and then the answer uh, from Jesus is in verses 17 through 26, where he says, And he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them. And then in, in, in verse 16, it says that you have the response of the people and others tempting him sought for a sign. And Jesus' answer was in verses 29 through uh, uh, 36. Both of the responses were responses of unbelief. Now, it might be argued that one was not rebellious as the other, but they were both enough to uh, bring about condemnation of Jesus. And the rest of the chapter will consist of Jesus addressing these two responses. But let's go first of all to Jesus answers his critic, critics in verses 17 through 26. Now, we noted these verses already uh, as the answer of Jesus in our last point there, but I want to read this. It's a little longer uh, passage, but follow along uh, in chapter 11, verse 17 through 26. This is Jesus' response. But he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against it, a house falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall this kingdom stand? Because he, ye say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub? And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges? But if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and he overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusteth and divided his spoils. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest, and finding none, he saith, I will return unto my house whence I came out. And when he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then goeth he, and taketh to him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there, and the last state of that man is the worse than the first." 
Here Jesus is proceeding to give a number of reasons whereby it can be de demonstrated that the change of being in league with Satan is unwarranted. Notice division is damaging. We saw that in verse 17 and 18. A house divided against itself followed. Now that sounds familiar if you know your history. You probably heard uh, or read that Abraham Lincoln said that. When there's civil war in a nation, that nation does not prosper. When a husband and wife set themselves against each other, it's not long before their marriage begins to collapse. And by the way, the same is true of a church. The quickest way to destroy a church is to allow division to exist in its midst. Now we come to the application. Jesus had been casting out demons. He had been at war against Satan. And if he's fighting Satan, then obviously not on Satan's side and not receiving his power from Satan. So this was a ridiculous uh, criticism of Jesus that he came uh, from Beelzebub because he's not on the side of Satan and he's not receiving his power from Satan. So division is damaging. Secondly, the devil has been defeated. Verse 18 says, Because ye that ye say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. Now, these critics have already conceded this point. They could not deny the obvious outward miraculous power that Jesus manifested. Satan has plainly been cast out, and they have observed and agreed that there are supernatural forces at work. The only question that they've raised are the identity of these forces. And if it can be demonstrated that Jesus is not in league with Satan, then the obvious conclusion is that he's been sent from God. Thirdly, the sons are decisive. Verse 19 says, And if I, by Beelzebub, cast out de devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges. Apparently, Attempts by casting out demons was not a new thing. Others had attempted to cure such cases of demon possession, probably with varying degrees of results. Now the book of Acts tells us uh, about a similar unsuccessful attempt to remove a demon out of an afflicted person in Acts chapter 19. But what made the ministry of Jesus so significant was that he never failed. We read of instances where the disciples attempted to cast out demons, but they failed. But that was never the case with Jesus. And so this is an argument from the less to the greater. If an accusation against Jesus is true, and he's a false healer, then how can it be said that anyone else is a true healer, since Jesus has demonstrated so much great effectiveness in battling the forces of darkness? The very fact that others have attempted to cast out demons and have met with less than perfect results is an indictment to all those who attempted to cast out demons. And then fourthly, the kingdom has come. Verse 20. But if I, if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. Now the fact that God's power has been manifested in such a mighty way is defeating in defeating the devil and his minions is that a sign that God is doing something that he has never done before. He's establishing his reign upon the earth. His, the kingdom has come. Now, do you know where 
In the Bible, it first mentions the finger of God. It's in the book of Exodus, where the magicians of Egypt were confronting Moses. <coughs> he had performed a very obvious miracle, and they duplicated it. He turned the waters of the Nile River into blood, and they duplicated it by making more blood. He brought up a plague of frogs, and they were able to produce more frogs. But there was a limit to their power, and when they came face to face with that limitation, they reported to Pharaoh, and they said this, This is the finger of God. Exodus chapter 8. And what was recognized by the pagan priests of Egypt was missed by the people here of Israel. Those who should have recognized the finger of God didn't recognize it. And so then delegation is limited. Verses 21 and 22. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divided his spoils. Now you cannot delegate more than you already have. Satan cannot delegate more power than he already has. If the power that is being used against Satan is greater than what Satan has himself, then he cannot be the source of the power. And this is illustrated by a strong man who's about to be robbed. If you want to rob a strong man... You do not go into his house and ask him to help you. Hey, this is kind of heavy. Can you help me get it out to my car? You know, I know it's yours, but I'm going to take it from you. But it's too heavy for me. Can you help me? No. What's that guy do? He throws you out of the house on your ear. You see, you must first tie him up. And that's what Jesus is saying He's been tying up Satan. He's been robbing the uh, kingdom of Satan. We all once were the property of Satan. We used to belong to his kingdom. Colossians 1.13, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. You see, when we came to Christ, we were taken out of Satan's domain and we now have become a prized possession of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus is in the business of tying up Satan. And when he cast out the demon of this man and Satan was powerless to do anything about it, that was a demonstration of the fact that Satan had been bound. Every time you see a man or a woman turn from their sin and come to Christ, you're seeing an example of Satan being bound. And God is taking a, a person, a man or a woman, out of the kingdom of Satan and putting them into his dear kingdom. And then neutrality is not possible. Verse 23. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. It's impossible to remain neutral, spiritually neutral. You're either on God's side or you're against him. You will always be moving in one of two directions. A preacher once asked how many people in his church were active. He was asked how many people in his church were active. Now this wasn't uh, asked of me, but this was another preacher who was asked this. And he replied, all of them are active. 
Half of them are active for me and half of them are active against me. But there is a spiritual war going on and you are an, an active participant. You're either active for God or you're active against God. It's one of the two. The only question is, on whose side are you on? But here's the point. Jesus had already noted that he and Satan were on opposite sides of this spiritual struggle. He has been fighting Satan and binding Satan and robbing Satan. Now we see that if you're not with Jesus, then you must be on the other side. And we know what side that is. It's Satan's side. Next, emptiness is invited. Inviting. Look at verse 24. And when the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest and finding none. He saith, I will return into my house whence I came out. And when he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then he go and goeth he and taketh him to seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So what Jesus is doing here, he's continuing the thought that he began in verse 23. There we saw him say, he that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth. Now we see why this is the case. It's because there's no such thing as spiritual neutrality. That's why you can never be spiritual merely by avoiding certain sins. Say, well, I don't do this, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go with girls that do, and so I must be spiritual. No, it's not being spiritual by avoiding certain sins. If spirituality were to be determined by avoiding certain things, then your dog could be the most spiritual person in the world. That is, if you have a dog. I don't have one, so... I don't have to worry about a spiritual dog. Because they don't do certain things. Well, let's just leave that at where it is. When someone is delivered from a demon or a temptation or a sin, the danger has not immediately been removed. When you take something away out of your life, it leaves a vacuum. And it's a fundamental law that nature abhors a vacuum. And so when there's a vacuum in your life, you cannot help but fill it. And if you fill it with anything other than the Spirit of God, the results will be a return to sin. Now, it may not be the same sin, but it may it will still be a sin unless you fill your life with the Spirit of God. Well, we could go on and on and on here, but uh, it's getting dark. I just want to make this very important point here. It is impossible to remain spiritually neutral. And I think that's the main thrust that I'm trying to, to get across here to us from this passage today. You are either on God's side or you're against him. You will always be moving in one 